Amen. Well, I want to personally thank Shannon and his family because he carried a heavier load this time, and I preached 19 times, and if it hadn't been for Shannon carrying some mess- more messages than normal, I probably wouldn't have a voice this morning. So thank him and Kathy and his family so much for that. All right. Children that wish to go to Children's Church, you're dismissed out that door right there. Second Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. I want to thank Dr. Rich Saplita for a great message last week. I was watching. It was 4 p.m. in Uganda, and I watched live your, the middle service here. Great job, brother. Thank you. I knew that passage just had your name all over it. And today is sort of a, it, it, it's sort of a continuation of that apologetics theme. Before we have our scripture reading, I just want to ask you one question. How do you know that what you believe is true? It's one thing to know what you believe. It's another to know why you believe it. Do you know why? Do you have evidence for the Bible being the Word of God and Jesus being who He claimed to be? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11.1 in the King James, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That means there's substance to our faith. Christianity is not this blind leap in the dark where you, you know, I'm going to try really hard to believe it, but it's really a fairy tale. No, there is substance to our faith. Can you defend it? First of all, do you know why you believe what you believe? And if it were challenged, would you be able to defend it? Let's stand. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 16. Same passage that Rich read, he dealt primarily with kind of the first two points that I'm going to touch on today, so those will be brief, and then I'll really camp out on point number three. Now, before we remember who wrote this, hello, this is Peter, remember Peter? The guy, he was one of Jesus' disciples, right? You know, lived with him three years, saw the miracles, etc., then he denies him at the mid, you know, at the crucial hour, then he sees Jesus flogged, crucified, and raised from the dead. Then his life was changed, which is why he would say, we, did, we, I'm one of the we, he, Peter, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, I saw it with my own eyes. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, so this is going to describe the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my beloved, so he hears this voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine being on the mountain and hearing the very voice of the Father? You don't see anything, but you hear the voice of God the Father speaking affirmation to his son. And you're there. You're there. This is Peter. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. And I'm going to say to you today, you would do well to pay attention to this message today. You will benefit greatly as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So context, darkness, light. Until the day dawns, day dawns, light, darkness, or darkness, light. And the morning star rises in your hearts. 
I've seen the morning. Morning star is the brightest star at night. I've seen it many times in a deer stand when I get there before daylight. And the morning star is still visible, and it's just before dawn. It's this sign that we're about to transition from darkness to light. There's hope. There's hope. Light is coming. In the same way Jesus came to transition us from darkness to light. And when you receive Christ and born again, you receive the morning star in your heart. How cool is that? The morning star of God, Jesus, in your heart, says it arises in your heart. So if you're not born again today, I pray that the morning star would rise in your heart today. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And what a great description here of the inspiration of Scripture. But men move from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. Men move from God. Say, men move from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, just as this passage talks about the morning star rising in our hearts, I pray that your truth and your word and your spirit will arise in our hearts, that we, those who were born again today will just have such a sense of confidence in, in the Bible and Jesus. Those that are unconvinced, this will lead them on a journey to really explore and get the evidence they need so that they can put their faith in you. And God, as I prayed even this morning at 4 a.m., I'm asking you to produce from this very message, whether in this room or online, the next Josh McDowell, the next Lee Strobel, the next Rich Sapleta, that you would raise up a great apologist who will defend the faith, write books, be influential worldwide for your glory. Maybe he's eight years old right now, 10 years old, five years old, 35, 85, doesn't matter. But you do something in this message in his heart that makes him or her begin to explore and investigate and write and preach in a way that will help many see that the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus is the Son of God. All for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when I graduated from the University of Georgia, I've shared this story before, but newer ones haven't heard it. When I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1983, I was called to be a college pastor of a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was my first experience with a frozen lake. Now, I mean a really frozen lake. I mean, I had been in a pond or a lake in Georgia where there's a thin layer of ice, but this was different. And I remember the first time I, it was January, it was about 20 below zero. And I was at Lake Harriet in Minneapolis, and I was right at the edge of this lake. And there was ice, and I'm kind of tiptoeing on this ice, because I was unsure if it was strong enough to hold me, only to look, and there's an F-150 driving across the lake. I'm, I'm dead serious. Because I learned later there was three feet of solid ice, and it could hold an, a truck. <laughs> I'm stepping out, man. You know? So a little bit of faith in a solid object, it's going to hold you. But... The world of faith in a little bit of thin ice. I got to have all the faith in the world in Georgia. I can walk on that water. I can walk on that lake. I can walk on that ice. And, and, and I got faith. I got faith. I'm going to believe, 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 believe. And I step out. I'm going to be soaking wet and freezing cold. How thick is your ice? How thick is your ice today? First of all, do you know why you believe what you believe? Could you defend it if it were attacked? And if you go to the University of Georgia, you're probably going to come... Somewhere in the classes there, and somebody's going to say, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. Nobody believes Jesus is the Son of God anymore. That's just fairy tale. 
Our oldest daughter did a gap year program with Chick-fil-A called Impact 360 between graduation from high school and college. And it's a Christian apologetics program where you really learn to discover what do you believe and why do you believe it. You'd read books from atheists and you'd have to write papers refuting those arguments. Then she came to Georgia. Smart move on the part of her parents, wouldn't you say? Just kidding. And so she's in a class her freshman year. Teacher says, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. I'm not making this up. She did. She stood up or she raised her hand. Yes, Catherine. Um, could you please share with a few of those contradictions with us? She didn't have an answer. She said, well, I'll get back to you. Next day, she had Googled contradictions in the Bible. She comes with this printout with all these lame apparent contradictions. My daughter answered every one of them. This is taken out of context. Uh, if you interpret this correctly, it really means this. Um, it's not what this is saying it means. Can you do that? Do you know why you believe? First of all, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? It's okay if you don't, as long as after today you start investigating. Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be? And if you do, can you defend it? Can you give me three good reasons why we should believe that the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus is the Son of God? And so I'm going to give you three solid pieces of evidence for the, for the Christian faith based on this passage here. There's many more. This is just from our passage, two of which Rich touched on last week, so we'll just review that, and then the third we'll camp out on. The first is this, what gives credibility to the Christian faith? Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is actually the most powerful piece of evidence for the Christian faith. For 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is useless, it's worthless, and we are most to be pitied, <laughs> because we're believing in something that is false. Furthermore, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar, because he claimed that he would rise. And if he didn't, then he's a liar, so who would believe in him? Furthermore, if he did not rise from the dead, all the skeptics of the day had to do was take his dead body out of the tomb and parade it down the streets of Jerusalem, and you and I would not be sitting here today. For Christianity would have never been birthed. But he did rise from the dead. And there is solid evidence for that. So when it says here that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, clearly the immediate context is the Mount of Transfiguration. But I think also we can expand that and say, eyewitnesses of his majesty also includes the majesty of his resurrection, who he is, that he rose on the third day, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it transformed Peter's life and many others' lives. And I love that verse in 1 Peter 1.3, which is the theme verse of the, what we name this church. We are born again to a living hope, hello, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope today, beloved, a hope that lives, a hope that's daily because Jesus rose from the dead, proved he was who he claimed to be, and he overcame sin, death, and Satan when he rose. And we put our faith in a risen Savior. And that's what transformed the life of Peter and so many others, which leads to number two, what gives credibility to the Christian faith. Number two, eyewitness accounts. Listen, in any court of law, and Rich talked about this last week, there is something very powerful about an eyewitness. I mean, it's one thing if you have circumstantial evidence. You know, this guy, he left home at this time, and we have no record of where he was for these two hours. That's when the crime occurred, and I think somebody, we kind of think that maybe on that camera it shows a little bit of a car, kind of looked like his, and, you know, some people get convicted on circumstantial evidence, but it's a whole different ballgame when you have eyewitnesses. We were at that bar at 2 a.m. We were there. We saw the fight broke out. We saw that guy take his gun out. He shot him. Five of us are here. They're going, yes, we all saw it. He's the guy, no question about it. That dude is going to jail 
for the rest of his life. The power of an eyewitness account. And that's why Peter says here, we were eyewitnesses. Listen, we, don't, we, didn't even, we didn't invent this. We didn't come up with some fairy tale. We didn't make this up so that we could somehow birth this new movement and we'd be the heroes. Not at all. This is the Peter who denied he knew Jesus. <laughs> After being with him for three years. So Peter wasn't this man of great courage who could just withstand anything. He denied that he knew him. After three years of campfire conversations, hearing the Sermon on the Mount, seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead, healing the blind, casting out demons. Three years of that. And then, at the most crucial time, he denies that he even knew him. And then, not soon after that, he's crucified. He's nailed to two pieces of wood. And then he dies and he's buried. Peter's one of those. It's like, what's going to happen? Our hope is gone. Day three, Jesus is risen. Peter runs to the tomb. Now it's one thing just to see an empty tomb. Maybe they stole the body. But then Jesus appears to him. He sees the physical risen body of Jesus Christ. He sees the nails in his wrist and in his feet. Furthermore, 40 days, Jesus is on earth. 40 days after the resurrection. This is why 1 Corinthians 15 says there were over 500 eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then he ascends, and 10 days later, the day of Pentecost comes, because you have 50, Penta, 50, 50 days after the Passover, Pentecost, the, the Feast of Harvest, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, and now Peter not only believes here, his heart is changed. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He preaches that Pentecost sermon. 3,000 are saved. But that's not all. He continues to serve, and he continues to go, and he continues to minister for Jesus until he dies a martyr's death. He dies a martyr's death. Read about it in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. In front of his wife, Peter is crucified upside down. Because he says, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. Listen, people die all the time for something they believe to be true, but it's not. Muslim terrorists, they believe it to be true. I'm going to get 70 virgins in heaven because I kill the infidels. People will, will die for something they believe to be true, but it's not. But no one dies for a known lie. Peter was there. If he had not risen from the dead, Peter nor the other 11 who were martyred for their faith would have ever died. For their faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, further evidence, this martyr's death, 11 of the 12 disciples dying a martyr's death, it wasn't this great. We all die at the same time. Drink the Kool-Aid, big suicide pact. Let's go down as heroes. Not at all. It was different times, different places, under different circumstances. Each of them willing to die for their faith in Jesus because they saw it for themselves. That's powerful evidence, beloved. Does that prove it? Beyond, I mean, does that prove it like you can scientifically repeat something? No, you can't prove any historical event like you prove something, that because it can't be repeated. But the way you look at any historical event, whether it's George Washington, whether it's Abraham Lincoln, whether it's World War II, is you take evidence, you take documents, you take written evidences, and eyewitnesses, credibility is like this. Let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to die for your faith in Jesus? Do you believe it strong enough 
that if this country does go through persecution, which it very well may, and you're called to the point where it's either deny Jesus or be killed, what will you do? The resurrection and eyewitness accounts, powerful evidence for the integrity, the credibility of the Christian faith. This third piece of evidence is where we'll spend most of our time, and it's actually the piece... I mean, the others are hugely strong. I mean, it's like, how can you put anything above the resurrection? I mean, really, you can't. But for me personally, I'm just saying my personal experience, this next point is what God used in my life. As a sophomore in college, I'd gotten saved my senior year in high school. I was passionate for Jesus. I I loved Jesus. I'd seen God change my life in incredible ways for about a year or two. And so there was no issue here. There was no problem here. But then I come to Georgia, and I have... Professors say things like I mentioned earlier, the Bible's full of contradictions, and it's just, it started to mess with my here. You see, it started messing with my mind. I, well, why do I believe what I believe? Is this just made up? Is there any evidence? Is there any integrity to my faith in Jesus? And it sent me on a journey. And God used Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell and his writings. Josh McDowell was a law student, and he made this statement in class one day Christians have two brains. One's out to lunch and the other's out looking for it. <laughs> There's no intellectual integrity to the Christian faith. This born-again classmate of Josh McDowell said, if you're so smart, why don't you disprove it? By the way, one statement you make could change someone's life and could lead to a great impact on many other people because of that one question, one question. If you're so smart, why don't you disprove it? That's all she said. Led to Josh McDowell going on a journey, and he went after two things, just like we're doing today. He said, if I can disprove the Bible, and if I can disprove the resurrection, man, I have nailed Christianity. Because the Bible is their truth source, and the resurrection will either prove or disprove whether Jesus is who he claimed to be. (laughs) So smartly, Josh went after those two issues, and what did he do? He ran headlong into the truth. And the truth convinced him that the Bible was God's word and Jesus is God's son. And he became a born-again believer. Now he's written over 20 selling, 20 best-selling books. Defending the faith. Defending the faith. And one of those is a little book called More Than a Carpenter. We have them in the lobby. You can take one for free. Because he wrote evidence that demands a verdict and more evidence that demands a verdict. They're both this thick, fully footnoted. Most people aren't going to read those. So he said, i got to condense it. <laughs> and now he co-wrote it with his son, And it's called More Than a Carpenter. What a great title. He was more than a carpenter. Jesus. He's the Son of God. And man, I challenge any of you, every Christian, every Christian should read that book. Because especially in our day and age today, Christianity is going to come under more attack. You not only need to know what you believe for you, you need to be able to defend it. Because the Bible says we are to defend the faith. So the third piece of evidence is Old Testament prophecies. I love this. It's prophecies in the Old Testament that show that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, before we get to that, I just want to bring attention to this little phrase at the end of verse 21. (laughs) I love this because it's a great description of what inspiration of Scripture means. And Rich talked about it last week, and I loved your point about exhaling. That was awesome. I'd never heard that before. It says that the Bible can be described as men move from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you have two things here. You have, the, the, you have man's part and you have God's part. Men spoke from God. God used the unique personalities, the unique circumstances, the unique historical context of every writer of the Bible. For example, 
Matthew's gospel contains tons of references to the Old Testament because he was Jewish. Luke was a physician, and he writes with precise detail. He is super careful. He's the doctor who's a perfectionist. Don't you want a perfectionist doctor? I'm having knee replacement in December, and I really hope that my doctor is a perfectionist. I don't want him missing any details. Hello. Oh, we forgot to put him under anesthesia. Ah! <laughs> yeah, we just, it just slipped our mind. <laughs> so you want a doctor who is a, who's a perfectionist. I don't care if he has good bedside manners. You know, I'll get that from my elders <laughs> and my wife. But, but the doctor. So Luke writes with incredible precision. John is a more emotional. He's the beloved. He's, I like John. He's like, like, you know, he's just very passionate. And so they're, they're, each gospel, each writer, Paul's style of Greek is a little different than Peter's style of Greek. Both wrote in Greek. And so this is cool because this is how God works with you and me. Isn't that awesome? He works in your unique situation with your unique personality and your unique situation. You can reach people that I can't reach. You're going to come in contact with people tomorrow that I'll never meet. And your personality and your gifts and your temperament are all going to be used by God if you allow him to. So you have men spoke from God, but then the ultimate overriding of everything as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Similar to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures inspired by God. And Rich did a great job talking about, it's not like you get inspired to write a poem or paint a picture. This is God breathed. And, and Rich brought a great point. It's like, exhaling. <laughs> the Greek word like being exhaled. It's in you and it comes out and it's by the Spirit. The Spirit ultimately writes the book through human instruments. So Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this. It's not Peter's intention to deny completely human volition or personality in the writing of Scripture. Again, he used their personalities and their, their humanity. But rather to say, the ultimate source of every prophecy was never man's decision about what he wanted to write, but rather the Holy Spirit's action. They are God's very words. Amen. And so I had a youth pastor that, that ministered with me in Wisconsin, uh, Dan Crevillian. And Dan Crevillian once said this. He said, if I were God, no, he said, if you were God, what better way to prove your existence than to do two things? Number one, become a man, come to earth. Oh, he did that, Jesus. And then the other is to write a book, to, write, to, to predict things way in advance of when they happen and have them happen just like they predicted. Because that would prove that you are beyond time and that you know here what's going to happen there, so you write here what's going to happen there so that they'll know that what was written here is from God. And that's what we have with Old Testament prophecies. And this was the very thing God used my sophomore year at college to show me, as I began to see some of these, and I'm just going to share a few with you today. As I began to see these, I went. I literally, I remember being in my dorm room in Creswell Hall. And I'm seeing this, and I'm reading more than a carpenter. I'm literally almost shaking because I'm like, there's no way this could say this unless this is God's word. And it just gave me a whole new respect for what you hold in your hand today. This is God's word. And what's even cooler than that is that ultimately, and this is all cool when you have this intellectual stuff here, but ultimately the way to know this is God's word, and I'm all about the intellectual stuff that you're going to get today, but it's ultimately here. Because Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
And it's when you read this book and God illuminates it and God applies it to your life and you read a passage you've read 24 times and you say, how did I miss that? And it just like jumps off the page. Man, that's when it really takes root in your heart. So let me just give you a few. And by the way, as we go through this, Josh McDowell, in his book, he talks about the mathematical probability of just eight of these. There's 300. There's over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Some are more direct and obvious, like the ones I'll show you. Others are a little bit more hidden. The probability of just eight of the 300 being fulfilled in one person is like filling the state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars and marking one of those. You fly over the state of Texas, you parachute out of a plane, you land, and you pick that one. That is the mathematical probability of just eight of these being fulfilled in one person. And all of them were fulfilled in Jesus. For example, Genesis 3. Right after sin entered the world, the Word of God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He there being Jesus, you're there being Satan. And you, Satan, will strike his heel. In other words, Satan will strike the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush the head of Satan. It's a powerful prophecy. Right after sin entered the world. Ooh. Isaiah 7.14 was written in 700 B.C. Y'all know what B.C. means. 700 years before Christ was born. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord himself, that's Father God, will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. Now, wait, 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 wait. Virgins don't conceive. I, I don't need to get into a sex education lesson here, but virgins don't conceive. Right? Unless a seed comes from somewhere else and is divinely implanted in her, and it's the seed of the Son of God, Jesus. This is why Jesus was fully God, fully man, because he had to be fully God and fully man to be our full redemptive atonement. He had to be fully man to bear our sins. He had to be fully God to be the sinless sacrifice. And you will call his name, conceive and give birth to a son. That's pretty specific. <laughs> and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it again. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Isaiah 9 6, we see it on Christmas cards all the time, but again, 700 BC. A good question was asked in the middle service how do we date these things? Are those dates credible? Absolutely. There's no doubt, even among skeptics, about the date of new or books of the Bible. They know by the parchment they were written on, the type of, you know, the way the writing was. Often those, those scrolls were kept in clay jars. And so they know from the, the type of clay jar and the type of pottery and all that. There's no question dating things. That's not even an issue. In the Dead Sea Scrolls and that were discovered in the Qumran cave, they found an, a much earlier copy of Isaiah, and it, is, it was almost identical to the Isaiah of our Bible. So, so it's just been amazing how with more manuscripts, and that's a whole other sermon, it's just given more credibility to the manuscripts that we have and, and the Bible we have and all of that. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Whoa. Micah 5.2. I was talking about this with Pastor Isaac in Uganda, and he said, this is my favorite one. I've been to Bethlehem personally. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Euphrates, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you, so this little teeny town in the Middle East, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then this next one is awesome. Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So this guy, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And he's going to be born, but his origins are actually from way beyond that. Sounds like John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What? Yeah, he was born 2,000 years ago, but he actually existed from eternity past. (laughs) You can't make this up. (laughs) And, And Micah predicts that one would be born exactly where he'd be born, but his actual origins are from eternity past. Zechariah 9.9 is the Palm Sunday prediction. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wow. Now, Numbers 21.9, at first you're going to say, wow, that's a stretch. Until we look at Jesus' statement about this verse. So as I'm reading this, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Numbers 21.9 says, So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Oh, what do you mean that refers to the crucifixion, lifting Jesus? Are you kidding me? That's kind of a, that's like a real stretch. Oh, really? Okay, well, let's look at John 3, because if I'm going to interpret the Bible, I'd like to go with the method Jesus used. I think the way Jesus interprets the Bible is probably the most accurate. <laughs> So in John 3, verse 14, Jesus says, if you've got a red-letter Bible, this is written in red, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoa. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So even that incident in the Old Testament, Moses, it was a picture, it was a foretaste, it was a shadow pointing to Jesus. Whoa. Remember Jesus said, all that was written in the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms was about me. Luke 24 says Luke 24, 49. Jesus said, all that was written in the law of the prophets and the Psalms, ultimately about me. Whoa. For God so loved the world. Isn't this awesome to see the context of the very verse that everybody knows? So right after that, after this issue about if the Son of Man be lifted up, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, just like the snake on the stick. For God so loved the world that that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's keep reading because we, we love the love of that and eternal life. But, you know, because some people, all they want is the love of God. They don't want the judgment of God. By the way, next week, we'll preach a sermon on how to know about false teachers and false prophets. And one of the biggest false teachings in today is universalism. Everybody's going to go to heaven. doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not. doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus. God will just accept everybody. That's called universalism. It's false teaching. In the very next part of 2 Peter chapter 2, it's going to talk about false teachings and false prophets. We heard about some in Uganda this week. And by the way, you know why there's some, a lot of false teachings in Africa today? Because of the United States. Because it's cheaper to get cable TV than internet. So everybody has cable, and what are they listening to? They're listening to Christian garbage TV, which is prosperity theology, health and wealth gospel. And it is bringing great damage to Africa. Okay, and and thankfully, Pastor Isaac is going deeper and deeper into the Word of God. He's always been full spirit. He's Pentecostal. But man, he is going deeper as Word and Spirit. And he values depth and he values theology. And so the last time I was there, he said, preach on the dangers of prosperity theology. I said, you really want me to? Yes. And he told me about this kook that recently got arrested in Uganda. You know what he was doing? 
He was, people were giving money to buy this heavenly ATM card. I'm not making this up. Give me money. Give money to my ministry. And we'll send you this heavenly ATM card. You'll be able to go to an ATM machine and put it in. And money will come from God out of that machine for you. The guy was ripping people off. He recently got arrested. Hallelujah. Folks, there are false teachers out there. And if we are not grounded in the word of God, we can be led astray. And so here he says, after verse 16, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Most people don't keep reading after 316. Psalm 22, written in 1000 BC, it's actually the chapter Jesus quotes on the cross. Read the whole thing today, but I'll just give you a portion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They pierced my hands and feet. Folks, this was written before crucifixion had even been invented as a means of capital punishment. The Romans invented crucifixion. This is long before the Romans did that. So how could somebody write about being had in their hands and feet pierced? Because it was written by God. Exactly what I said earlier. What a great way to prove that you're God and that this is your word by having something written in a thousand years before it happened and have it happen just like it was written. They cast lots for my garment. How specific can you get than that? The soldiers that crucified him are casting lots to buy the garment he wore. Folks, that is about as specific as they come. It's one thing, to, I mean, it's awesome that he predicts where he's going to be born. That's, a, that's incredible. This is getting really specific. <laughs> God is a God of detail. And he's a God of detail for you and me. He's concerned about your afternoon, Rob. Brooks, he's concerned about who you marry <laughs> and, and what you're going to study next, what book you're going to read next. He's a God of detail. Steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Man, we saw that on our trip. Just God just intervening. We, we came this close to not even getting out of Atlanta. I'm texting people, guys, they're not accepting our, our visa application, and please pray. Within 15 minutes, the guy comes back and says, you're free to go. And the lady next to him says, he never does this. That's what she said. He's never done this before. She said, he always says to people, it is what it is, and he's turned people away from a flight. Seriously, she was freaking out. God's a God of detail. Then we go to Isaiah 53. It's the greatest chapter. It's the greatest perfect chapter in all the Bible. Read the whole thing today. I'll just give you one verse, a couple verses. By the way, later today, go to my Facebook page. I posted early this morning a video that is really powerful. It's a guy who takes Isaiah 53 in Jerusalem. And he reads, he has, he has people read from Isaiah 53, Jewish people. Now, it's all in Hebrew, but it gives you the English below. And he basically says to them, who do you think this is, what do you think, who do you think this is talking about? And they almost all say, well, Jesus. And then he says, do you realize this is in the Hebrew Bible? And they're freaking out. And by the way, some Jews today have removed this chapter from the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. They've removed it because they know it talks about Jesus and they don't want people to discover that. Many Jewish Bibles today exclude Isaiah 53, and they need to be called to account for that. And so this video is amazing, because all he does is he says, of, could I just, kind of like we do the surveys at the Great Exchange, and he, he's interviewing these people, and he, 
He says, by the way, could, could, could I read something to you? Or he has them read it. And he'll just read something like this, and he'll say, what do you think of that? And what do you think that refers to? And oh, that's referring to Jesus. <laughs> do you realize this is in the Old Testament? And they're stunned. It's powerful. Got to watch it. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering. 700 BC, by the way. He was pierced for our transgressions. And by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him, the Lord, Father, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. I know exactly where I was in my dorm room when I started discovering this. And by the way, this was cool. We realized this week, Isaiah 53 is what Philip quoted to the Ethiopian eunuch on the chariot. Here we are in Ethiopia, you know? And man, they love that story because, man, this is our guy. Man, it's our, we're in the Bible, man. Ethiopia, maybe. This is the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip preaches using Isaiah 53. Powerful stuff. Then Jeremiah 31, prophecy about the new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant. And I should have had up there because it's even a better one. Is Ezekiel 36, 26. That's where he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Old Covenant was powerful. I mean, God worked, and they, they had a relationship, but it wasn't like the New Covenant. Now he says, I'm going to take that old spirit, that old heart, that sinful nature. He was crucified with Jesus, because I've been crucified with Christ. And Romans 6 says the old man is dead. He was crucified with Jesus. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, in you. I'm going to put it inside of you so that now you're going to long to obey me. You're going to love my word. You're going to have a passion for me. And I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you from the inside out. It's not you trying to change yourself from the outside in by trying hard, being religious, getting more discipline. That ain't the way it works. Try it. You'll burn out. It's God's life in you. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in, or maybe of, faith of the Son of God. Preach that in Uganda. They loved it. Man, they loved it. Isaac, is get, he is getting the exchange life, Robert and Juliet. Man, that whole exchange life, man, you preach that again. You preach that here. I say, God loves me, and, and Isaac has a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> you preach that here. Now, you do this. I mean, I'm all ready to do this and this and this. And then all of a sudden, last minute, Isaac says, no, you do this. You do this here. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I'm here. Whatever you say. <laughs> but man, when you get that exchange life, and it was prophesied, there's going to come a new covenant. I'm going to do a new thing. So, beloved, I ask you this question today. How thick is your ice? <laughs> All of these things that we've talked about today give substance to our faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. They show that the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus is the Son of God. God wants you to know that, not just here, but here. So if you're not saved today, why aren't you saved? Maybe you have some legitimate questions, and that's good, as long as you allow them to lead you on a path of discovering the answers. If you are born again today, I pray that this time in the, in the Word today deepens your eyes, thickens your eyes, gives you greater confidence, 
and gives you things you can share with others that might have questions, and, can, and then you can defend your faith. All right, let's take a few questions. Cannot imagine this not arousing some questions. <laughs> We've had good questions in all of the other, all the other previous services, even in the chapel. It was cool in the chapel today, you guys. This guy, he's a Penn State grad. He works in Florida. He's on his way to have vacation in this great Smoky Mountains. And he, he goes, I think Athens would be a good place to kind of stop on my way. Googles non-denominational churches in Athens. Boom, lands on us, comes to our 815 service. It's so cool. I just love that. All right. So you can text them in or raise your hand. Um, you talked about the Old Testament, and uh, you had a thing on the screen that said, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, where did you get that from? That that's the, that's the passage, Second Peter one, twenty one. Okay. Yeah. Sorry if they didn't identify it. Yeah, that's the that's the verse twenty one of our passage. Thank you. Sorry that wasn't clear on the screen on the slide. I did this PowerPoint before I left for Uganda because I knew I couldn't get it done over there because I didn't take my computer. <laughs> yeah, I told back this morning I got to review the PowerPoint. I forgot what I even put on there. Nobody's going to ask the question that I said I would answer on Facebook. Rich, you remember what it was? It's okay. No. Who, where, where'd that come from? Look at this. The worship team. Yes. Thank you. All right. So this is a great question. Why is both Jesus and Satan referred to as the morning star? Isaiah 14, 12, in the description of the fall of Lucifer, calls him the morning star in the NIV. Very easy answer. It's not a good, not a good translation. I looked it up in the Hebrew this morning. It's son of the morning. All other translations don't, don't say morning star. They say son of the morning. But even if it was morning star... It wouldn't be a surprise because what does Satan want to do? He wants to be like Jesus. He, wants, he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Just like people say, well, why is Satan and Jesus both called lion? Ah, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, he, he, he's, he's, he, your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion. Ah, he's not a lion, but he tries to be one. Because he always wanted to be like Jesus. That's why God kicked him out of heaven. Because he says, Lucifer sought to get the very throne of God. So Satan will offer you things that look good. Satan will say, ah, just party. Have sex with whoever. Don't believe in absolute morality. Here, follow my way. I'll give you fun and pleasure and da-da-da-da-da. But what does it lead to? Death. That's why Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So even if he were called the morning star, which he's not, it wouldn't surprise us because he will always try to be like Jesus. Um, back to the beginning of your sermon today, you were talking about eyewitnesses. And talking about what? <clears throat> eyewitnesses? Yes. Um, when Jesus was resurrected and they realized he wasn't in the tomb, um, wasn't there a period of time where he wasn't recognizable? Um, to like he did not 
Well, not, I wouldn't say not recognizable, but I would say his resurrection body had different chemical components. What does that mean? But it was recognizable that it was him, and this is why various references suggest that he kind of probably was able to walk through walls. Okay. So it was physical because he, remember he told uh, 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 Thomas, Thomas, put your hands here. See, put your hands in the hole. So there was a physical material component to it, but it seemed like it was also this mysterious non-physicalness at times. It's really a mystery. We'll find out one day in heaven. Um, but it wasn't that he was not recognizable. It's that the com composition of his resurrected body was somehow different, but we don't know exactly how. Good question. Remember Murray Harris, Didi? That was the thing that got Murray Harris. Murray Harris came under great scrutiny back when we were at Trinity because he had made this statement, not much different than what I just said, and he, oh, you don't believe that he was actually physically raised? Not at all what he was saying. I mean, people just go off. Were you going to say something? Hold on, get the mic, get the mic. Pastor's wife gets high priority right here. I know what she's referring to. She's talking about the passage where they're walking with Jesus and they didn't recognize him. Okay, but that says, it wasn't that he was unrecognizable, it's that God hadn't opened their eyes yet. Okay, so that's yeah. what she's referring to. No, that's good. That probably better relates to it. Thank you. Always good to have my wife in the room. You need to come to all three services, honey, from now on. <laughs> um, no, that's good. So that one, it specifically says their eyes had not been opened yet. So that it, was just a, it was an issue of just not, God hadn't just enabled them yet. But it wasn't that he wasn't the same Jesus or had a, you know, oh, he had dark hair and then now he has red hair. Not at all. Also, Wait, you've already done one, brother. I know this is I'm just kidding. from somebody else. <laughs> oh, for somebody else. Yeah. Okay. The Jews, uh, you said they want Isaiah 53 taken out, and I've heard a lot of times Jews don't believe that Jesus is a Messiah. So who did the Jews think that the Messiah is? Well, they don't believe he's come yet. They're still waiting for him. Right. So they don't. What about the King David? What well, they, they believe in King David, but he, they don't believe he was a Messiah. Okay. So modern-day Jews believe the Messiah is still yet to come. Good point. The, one of the ways they're going to be led astray is they will think the Antichrist is the Messiah. Many, some will. Yeah. It's good. Yes. Yeah. Sign language for Jesus is this. Isn't that cool? We had, an, we had a uh, deaf interpretation in our church in Wisconsin. And it was funny because she had this, she had this, it was funny, it was awesome to watch her, especially sign during worship. But she also had this sign, when I get going too fast, she had this little sign, she would put it on her back so I could see it and it said, slow down. Because <laughs> she's like, I was, <laughs> remember Virginia Steindorf? A couple more. You looking at your phone, Jimmy? You got your number up here. Oh, yeah, there they are. There we go. <laughs> they might get some from Uganda. You never know. There's a lot of people following us in Africa now, so y'all behave yourself. They're watching our live stream. <laughs> Robert. <laughs> I can tell Robert's laugh. I love it. Hello, Uganda. We love you. How do I identify false prophets, and how can I make Jesus my friend? What was the first part I didn't hear? How do I identify false prophets? We'll learn that next week. No, really, that's the, well, that's the message next week. 
How can I make Jesus my friend? By seeking him every day and loving him, praying, spending time in the word, being with godly people, um, just developing that personal relationship. You know, it's all about relationship. It's not religion. It's relationship. Um, and just, I think, time with God, time in the Word, time in prayer, time with godly people, time in worship. Um, he becomes more and more your friend. He's always our Lord and our God, and there's a respect. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So friendship never means you lose respect, and you bow before Him, and He is holy, and He calls the shots, and He is sovereign, and He's our friend. I mean, isn't that just cool? I mean, just that God would, Jesus would be all of that. It's just so amazing. Why would you not want to follow him? Why would you not want to give your all to this amazing God who's done all this for us? Can you explain or discuss the biblical instruction to not debate with unbelievers, but also to be able to defend the faith? What he's referring to is don't get into foolish arguments. That's what Tim says in Timothy. I think it might be in Peter, but don't get into foolish arguments that are just going nowhere. But we are to defend the faith. We are to uh, defend the faith. And uh, what's the, man, I'm blanking, Rich, the verse that apologetics comes from. 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give a defense. There it is, 1 Peter 3.15. And so you couple that with don't get into foolish arguments. So you basically need to say, okay, is this being fruitful? Don't bruise the fruit, you guys. Some people come on so strong, they bruise the fruit. Be just says, give a kind, gentle answer. A gentle answer turns away wrath. You know, and so be gentle, be loving, pray for the person, because only God can ultimately bring about a conversion. We plant, we water, God causes the growth. Um, regarding defending our faith, how would we defend the Trinity? Well, finding creative ways. Well, first of all, Scripture. That's the authority. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's pretty strong. Um, Genesis 3, let us. What? Plural. Let us make man in our image. Whoa, what a, uh, that's interesting. Um, the, the verse I'm going to use in my benediction today. May the grace of the Lord Jesus... The love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Trinity. So you, you go to Scripture. And then I think you also creative, again, every analogy breaks down. H2O, you know, it's H2O in its essence, but it can be manifested as solid, liquid, or gas. You know, all those analogies ultimately break down. And ultimately the Trinity is a mystery. But it's still taught and it's still true, and aren't we glad it is true? So that, that's my take. Does but it, never really remember, guys, we can never convince anybody. Right. It's not our job. And we talked in second service today about when, when people aren't receptive, what do you do? You shake the dust off your feet. You keep praying, you keep loving them, but don't, this sounds, I don't mean don't waste your time like they're not valuable, but I mean, I think Jesus, I like that Jesus said that. He told his disciples, if you go to a place and you share and they're not receptive, don't keep pounding, you know, move on. Move on. I think he said that because we'd go crazy if we keep trying to hit the person that has a hard heart. Just keep praying, keep loving, but move on where people are receptive. There's far more people that are going to be receptive if we just go. And so when Rich goes and preaches and people blast him and they're not receptive, man, he just perseveres because eventually somebody is receptive and it gives you hope. Um, 
He doesn't let the people who reject, because they're not rejecting him, they're rejecting God. Um, and that helps us maintain joy as we do ministry. It's like, don't let people steal your joy. Don't let people's rejection of Jesus steal your joy. All right, one more. Does it matter if David was aware and conscious that he was prophesying Jesus' death in Psalm 22? What do you think? Oh, I don't think he had any clue. Personally, I don't, I don't think he had any clue. I think he's writing and he's expressing maybe a struggle. Actually, it wasn't. I don't think David wrote Psalm 22. doesn't matter. But I think it was uh, Sons of Asaph. Nope, it's David. Psalm of David. Never mind. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't personally think, but maybe he did. Again, we'll find out in heaven one day. Maybe God just gave him this amazing revelation. Maybe he's writing, literally, this would be cool. He's writing, and God gives him a vision, and he sees Jesus. I mean, that'd be cool. That actually, I, I hope that's the case. So I, the bottom line is we don't know. We don't know. I said one more, but you look like you got another one. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got Jerry here been waiting for a little while. Oh, Okay. Right here. Oh. It's, it's going to be quick. Hey, Jerry. <laughs> um, I, it's kind of been a, um, but I just want to say my life tell a story. From where I used to be to what I do. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still doing it. Come on. He never stops. Come on. He's still working. Come on. You don't see him, he works. He's working all the time. So just go by what you, your <laughs> life changed. Mm. You can they, they, they may not yeah. be in no hurry because they don't want God said they'd rather darkness than the light mm. but the light gonna shine mm. you can't put the light out so let your light so shine Man. and that's gonna tell a story I think we can close with that worship team come on out Francis Schaeffer said the greatest apologetic to a lost and dying world is love the or the final the final apologetic final proof to a watching, dying world is love. Us being filled with the love of God and loving other people with his love. Father, we love you and we thank you. Praise you for your spirit, your presence today, your awesome word. And I just entrust it now to you. You use it to bear the fruit you want it to bear. In Jesus' name.